down a threat to decency and humanity. Last week, along with cocaine, what is it today? It's more in one small country. It is a big idea. Because of oppression, has new Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the secret history of the world that you were never taught. An interesting thing to look at here tonight. We're going to see what it is that the secret schools actually believe about the history of the world. We're going to find out some of the things that they are taught on the inside of these secret society groups at the topmost levels. The things that they believe to be true about our origins as human beings in the modern era and about some things that have happened in the past that you never heard about in school, nor will you ever hear about in school or much of anywhere else for that matter. Tonight we're going to look into a rather rare book called The Shepherd of Men, An official commentary on the Sermon of Hermes Trismegistus by Dr. A.S. Raleigh, the Hierophant of the Mysteries of Isis, and the official scribe of the Hermetic Brotherhood. And this book was published in 1916. So this book is 108 years old now. And in this book, you're going to hear a lot of interesting things about our history and our origins that you probably never suspected to be anywhere close to the truth. Now, is this really the truth? I can't say that for certain. This is what they claim in the secret schools, though. This is what they claim is the truth about our history and our background and where it is we've come from. And the things they do reflect their beliefs in this history. That will be handed down here. Now, as with all of this, I always tell you, you do need to take it with a grain of salt. We have no true way of proving any of this. No way to disprove any of this either. A lot of it is kind of taken on a modicum of faith. And where exactly this information comes from, it's hard to say for certain. But according to Dr. Raleigh, this has been handed down through the generations, from those who know. And of course, as you may have heard in the past, a lot of this ties back to the notion of a more advanced civilization that existed before the modern era. And oftentimes this is referred to by those in the secret schools and those outside the secret schools as the lost continent of Atlantis. The lost civilization of Atlantis. And of course we'll be discussing that here tonight. But you see, also in the secret schools, they have other traditions that go back further than Atlantis. 
they also talk of the Lemurians, the land of Lemuria. And also there's a continent known as Mu. And they speak of these worlds of antiquity, these nation-states of antiquity, these civilizations of antiquity. And they claim that this is the true nature of our reality. And as we'll see here tonight, they claim they can trace back some of these cultural aspects to these prior civilizations. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it here. This is actually in the second half of this book, where they have the historical context here, where Dr. Raleigh speaks on these things and puts down notes for people. And always bear in mind, many of these books were never intended to get outside of the occult brotherhoods, the secret society groups, the occult fraternities, that harbor these secret teachings. This is part of their secret doctrine. This is not something for the profane to know about, and thus they've kept much of this information hidden from the masses for millennia now, tucked away in the secret schools, only for those who are deemed worthy within the secret schools and advanced to a high enough level in the occult fraternities. That's who they keep these secrets of the ages for, ostensibly here, by their own claims. Now, without further ado, let's get into it. The Atlanteans. After the great upheaval which brought to an end the third, or Lemurian race, the next manifestation of life and consciousness was on the continent of Atlantis. This land, and the race that inhabited it, have been known by different names at different times and in different countries, but whether it is spoken of as the land of Mu, the country of the mud hills, the sacred lands, or the land of the Ethiopes, it at all times means the same land and the same people. Homer speaks of the land far beyond the setting sun, beyond the pillars of Hercules where the Ethiopes dwell, and it is Atlantis that he has in mind. The question then is, why does he call these people the Ethiopes? The term Ethiopes has two meanings. In the first place, it is the bright faces or the shining faces. And in the second place, it is the people who spoke the language of ether, or ether spelled A-E-T-H-E-R, according as we use it in the Greek or the Latin spelling. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, Ethiopes either means bright faces or shining faces, in the one aspect of the etymological roots of the word, or it could be speaking about the language that these people of the land of Atlantis supposedly had supposedly spoken. The language of ether. That's an interesting sub-point in and of itself. The language of ether. Let's continue on, though, and we'll see what else we can garner from this text. There are two kinds of Ethiopes known to the ancients. There were the mythical Ethiopes, as they are sometimes spoken of, 
though they were not mythical at all, for they were the Lemurians. And then there were the historical Ethiopes, or the Atlanteans. These latter spoke the language of Ether, that is, the original Lemurian language, and therefore were an outgrowth of that race, who were the same as the giants who were destroyed by the thunderbolts of Zeus. They were called the Bright Faces, or the Shining Faces, because of their peculiar complexion. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we're beginning to see we have some connections back here to this race of beings that allegedly existed in the time of Atlantis, this era, before our own modern historical era, before the advent or rise of human civilization here on Earth as we know it. This goes back even further than that. The antediluvian times, times before this great flood that was recorded by many nations and peoples and cultures around the world, irrespective of where they are located in the world. There's always these common flood myths. And there's always these common myths of a civilization that existed prior to these great floods or cataclysms or catastrophes that occurred. And, of course, we always see the ties back to this notion that these were giants. This ties back to the Genesis chapter 6 experiment, as it's sometimes referred to by some researchers, wherein we see the rise of these beings known in the Bible recorded as the Nephilim. Are these one and the same as the giants recorded in Greek mythology, the Titans? The Titans, and if you've listened to this program for any length of time, and if you've listened to some of the subscriber-only episodes, you may remember at one point I covered Atlantis, the mythology surrounding Atlantis and the race of beings that allegedly existed there. And of course they were described physically as giants who hopped around like kangaroos. I'm not making this up. In some of the Rosicrucian writings, this is how they record their history. They claim they hopped around like kangaroos. They were giants. You can go listen to that episode if you'd like. But at any rate, we have these same notions that crop up over and over again. So this race of Atlanteans, they were humans that were our predecessors, a different type of human being, a different race of human being, if you want to go down that convoluted route of thinking, according to the secret schools. And they were giants, and they had bright faces or shining faces, according to this. And of course, I think that was also stated in the other episode I did specifically on Atlantis and how the Rosicrucians cover the information about Atlantis. But now this is coming from the Hermetic Brotherhood. So we get a lot of the same information, just with a little bit different twist and maybe some different details attached to it. So the Rosicrucians, they had their belief in the Lemurians as a race that was predecessors of the Atlanteans, and now we see where we have this historical crossover between the Lemurian remnant and the Atlanteans being covered here by the Hermetic Brotherhood. They all teach the same things, regardless of what the secret society group is, just sometimes with a little slightly different bit of detail or perhaps 
sometimes with slightly different descriptive terms or words or ways of describing what's being presented here. But it's all the same information across the board. But let's continue on and we'll see what else we can garner here. The original Atlantis was not a continent, but was rather a low plain that connected North America and Europe, so that there was but one continent. At that time, the Sahara Desert and also the Gobi Desert were covered by the sea, and the same was true of a great portion of North America. The great center of human life was Atlantis. The people who lived upon it were a very spiritual and idealistic race, this was the time indicated by the Greeks in their traditions of the Golden Age. The first sub-race of the Atlantean root race was very spiritual indeed. They were the yellow-white or moon-colored race. In the course of time, they developed a more dominant and slightly less spiritual sub-race, the second in the series, who were of a pure golden complexion. This was the ancient golden-hued race, the lords of the sacred fire principle. This was in reality the golden age of song and verse. During their reign, philosophy was at its height. After the lapse of time, this golden-hued race gave way to a more material race, who were the third sub-race of the Atlantean root race. This race was of a red complexion, and were the red Atlanteans. They were the race who specialized science until it reached a height such as it has never attained at any other time before or since. Not only were the physical sciences reduced to an absolute unity, but they delved into occult science to a degree that has never been equaled since their time. They were the incarnations of the pure fire principle in its material aspect, and the result was that they were the absolute masters of the hermetic fire. This people were the hermetic scientists par excellence. Their civilization was the organized expression of hermetic science in all the relations of manifesting life. In course of time, however, they turned their attention from speculative occultism to practical occultism, and this, in time, led to their degeneracy. From hermetic science, they turned to hermetic art. That is, the majority of them did, and of course, the inevitable result of giving their attention to practical occultism was manifested in their lives. They became material and practical and developed into a lower type. This lower type was called the black race. Though they were not in reality black, but dark red, while the red Atlanteans, or third race, were of a very bright red complexion. Thus was born the fourth sub-race, or the dark Atlanteans. They were merely the evolution out of the third, or red Atlantean race. They turned to magic and alchemy, and finally to all forms of psychism as well. They developed the war spirit to a very high degree and almost conquered the entire world. Naturally, their magical and occult practices degenerated into the dark side until about the time of the sinking of the country, they were a race addicted to the higher forms of black magic. So I'm going to pause right there, folks. Now, as I always caution you, you do have to take this stuff with a grain of salt, and it may be a bridge too far for some people. But we're seeing here what is claimed to be the secret history 
of Atlantis and the truth about Atlantis and this Atlantean subrace that later spawned our modern human race, ostensibly. This is what's taught in the secret schools, so whether you believe this or not is irrelevant. What you need to understand is there are people in positions of power in this world that very much believe in these things, and the things they do to act upon their beliefs in these things will affect all of us, so it's important that you understand this and you hear this. Then you also have to consider what if this is the true nature of where we come from and how things have developed here. We certainly know that much of our history is hidden or occulted from us by certain power groups in this world. There are many things we do not know about our past, and there are evidences present that perhaps advanced civilizations did exist prior to the modern incarnation of humanity here. We see this kind of evidence. So what's being said here is we have this breakdown of these various Atlantean races and how they developed over the course of time. So toward the end, it looks like they had shifted from this golden race, this golden-hued race, to the red race, and then eventually to the black race, as they call them here. And of course, I don't think it's necessarily speaking on terms of actual skin color, although I reserve the right to be totally wrong about that. But we see how we have this connotation attached to different portions of these various sub-races of the Atlantean people, according to this teaching. And we could also understand, perhaps, how some of our racial biases of today and of modern humanity have come about based on these principles that are taught in the secret schools. This is the true root of racism, ladies and gentlemen. It falls back to this notion of these past root races. So they call them in the secret schools. These root races, and of course, they claim that certain root races were more spiritually advanced than others, more spiritually evolved than others, and they've attached this connotation in the physical material world paradigm to nonsensical things like skin color, complexion, and various other factors like that in the physical structure or form of human beings. You see what they've done. They've convoluted these teachings and principles that have been brought forward through these secret schools, and they've applied them in a material world sense and have brought about many not-so-good things in our society and culture as a result hereof. And it's been promulgated unto today. Now, like I said, I don't think they were strictly speaking on the color of the skin of these beings. You see, they called them the black race at the end because they began to practice forms of black magic within occultism. And practical occultism, not just theoretical occultism. Practical occultism. 
which means they were applying it and using it in their day-to-day lives. And this is something that's frowned upon, not only by many of the religions of our world today, but by many of those within these secret society groups. Or at least this is what they claim. They don't see it as being a good thing. So it says that this third Atlantean Rus red sorry, excuse me. This third Atlantean root race, the Red Atlantean race, eventually devolved into this black Atlantean race because they began to turn to practical occultism, to magic, to alchemy, and psychism of all sorts. And they applied it and degenerated it into the dark side of things. And they became addicted to what's said to be higher forms of black magic here. So they took the hermetic sciences and they began practicing the hermetic arts along with the hermetic sciences. And eventually it drove them to the dark side Which, ladies and gentlemen, if you do any study into what's called magic, you always find that that's always where that leads to the dark side. And I've done entire episodes speaking on that, on these various forms of magic and how they always seem to invariably lead down that path. So we see this explained in the secret history that we're going through here of the Atlanteans. Let's continue on, though. As time went on, the red race became numerically weaker and the dark race numerically stronger until at last the entire country was dominated by the dark race. During all this time, the form of government had remained largely the same. That is to say, it was a union of the theocratic and the autocratic form. The basis of one's standing in the aristocracy was his degree of initiation and his resultant spiritual attainment. The emperor was at all times the highest initiate, and for that reason was in a sense the head of the hierarchy. His position as head of the nation caused the union of the sacerdotal and political functions in his person. There was, however, a balance in the power owing to the fact that the actual functions of the high priesthood were not discharged by the emperor, but by the high priest. The fact, however, that the high priest was of necessity a member of the royal family caused him and the emperor to act in harmony. Another arrangement which worked for the balance of power between the two was the fact that the emperor was the spiritual subject of the high priest, while the high priest was the political subject of the emperor. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we're beginning to get down to some of the core roots of some of the ideas promulgated by the secret society groups into today and by governance structures that we have today. And things that have happened throughout the course of the ages that we know of, of recorded history of the modern human race. It's all beginning to click, isn't it? Just a couple of quick notions here. Looking back, we could see Atlantis was not truly a continent. It was actually the portion of the Atlantic Ocean now and was above ground. You see the structure of the Earth, according to these people, back in time was different than it is now. They said the Gobi Desert was underwater. 
the Sahara Desert was underwater, much of North America was underwater, and the land surface encompassed most of what we would call the Atlantic Basin today, and this is where Atlantis existed. But things changed, and we'll get there over the next couple moments here as to the description of what exactly happened. But we see we had these Atlantean races. There was a golden age in Atlantis, and there was an advanced civilization that cropped up on the heels of that golden age that were called the Red Atlanteans, but then they eventually became so advanced in their science and their art, their hermetic sciences and arts, that they eventually began to become dominated by this black race of Atlanteans. The red race devolved to the black race, where they sought occultism in its practical form, and magic and alchemy, and utilized this, and it brought about their downfall. But let's go ahead and we'll continue on here. Another point before we do proceed, though, is you see we have the emperor and the high priest being accountable to one another. And we have the establishment of the priestcraft and the statecraft, the church and the state, working together in unity, one maintaining the balance of power from the other, you see, the emperor had to answer to the high priest, and the high priest had to act, answer to the emperor. And, of course, conveniently enough, the high priest had to be a member of the royal family. So the power structure has always maintained within these family bloodlines, even going back this far, going back before our modern recorded history. So that's one important point. The other important point is... At one point, this ruling class was divided between the emperor and the high priest. It, they were separate and equal entities in regards to governance and control over the things that happen in their land and to their people. And it was said to be a harmonious time. And we've covered some things like this before, the idea of church and state, and how they were unified in a grand alchemical marriage with the formation and the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church, or the Vatican, from the old Roman Empire. They were fused together, and now the priest is king. The priest is emperor, and the emperor is priest, you don't have the balance of power anymore. This is what happened in modern governance structures in this world. And this is an important little nuance to pick out. And we'll see how this, I think, plays a role as we go through the rest of the secret history here. Let's continue on. As time went by, the land of Atlantis gradually sank below the surface of the ocean. In this way, the continent of Atlantis was formed by the sinking of that portion of the land that connected it with what is now North America and also with Europe. The British Isles, being the highest part of the country, remained above the water, and thus the Isles were separated from the mainland of Atlantis and also from Europe. 
The people who were inhabiting them at the time of the separation from the mainland remained upon them, and their descendants became the Celtic Druids. The original religion of the Druids was that of Atlantis, though in time it degenerated to some extent. The wonderful civilization of the ancient Druids was therefore the survival of the Atlantean civilization. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And now you know why the British folks seem to think that this is their divine providence to rule the world. They see themselves as being the ancestors, not the ancestors, the descendants of the Atlanteans of this race who ruled the world in times past, this advanced civilization. Now you know a few things. Let's continue on. The land continued to sink from time to time, and at last there was nothing left but the island of Poseidonus, which stretched from Greenland to the Azor Islands, and was 1,500 miles from east to west. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we're learning some very specific things about this Atlantis. We know the very size of Atlantis now. We know where it was located. And we know approximately where it was in the Atlantic Basin the main continent, what became the main continent of Atlantis over the course of time. You see, this is different than anything you've heard about many of the legends of Atlantis before. This is the secret knowledge that's been held in reserve in these secret society groups. This is the claim, anyway. I don't know if there's any modicum of truth to any of this, but it seems illogical that they would pass down this information and Maintain the secrecy around it in such a way for as long as they have, if there was nothing to it. So there may be some kernels of truth here. And of course, this is much different than what our mainstream history and mainstream geology would tell us about this notion of Atlantis. Did you ever learn about it in school? Maybe in a passing chuckle or something from your history teacher? Or maybe if you had studied the classics, you heard about, perhaps, the works of some of the ancient Greeks talking about Atlantis and how it was this island beyond the pillars of Hercules out in the ocean, and that's pretty much the only historical nugget that we have referring to it. At least that's what they would like for you to believe. There's a whole subtext about Atlantis within the secret society groups, folks. Let's go ahead and we'll continue on here. So we just described that all that was left of what was formerly the continent of Atlantis that sank under the sea was the island of Poseidonus, which is what people would refer to now as the continent of Atlantis. It was actually much larger than that. It was one massive landmass kind of a supercontinent, if you will. But over the course of time, it slowly began to sink under the sea until such point that all that was left is this island of Poseidonus, which later became known 
by the ancient Greeks and some of the ancient cultures as the continent of Atlantis. And this is the familiar description that we have of Atlantis in our historical records that are pretty much available mainstream. If you want to call them records, most people regard them as legend or myth. But according to these people, this is real history. Let's read on. In time, this was entirely dominated by the Dark Atlanteans, they having driven the Red Atlanteans out of the country long before. Sometime before this, the two races became so distinct that they formed two distinct nations, the Red Atlanteans being known as the White Empire, owing to the fact that they had nothing to do with black magic. They were the bright faces or the shining faces, and their nobility were called the Lords of the Shining Face. Their emperor was at all times spoken of as the White Emperor, because he was the head of the White Adepts, or the Adepts of the Sacred Art. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now, once again, you begin to see, surfacing here, some of the ideas that were later propped up by these secret society groups and these occult fraternities about the nature of who they are within these occult fraternities. You see, they think of themselves as adepts or masters. Initiation is important to them, and as we see, according to the text here that we're given, in ancient Atlantis, your degree of initiation decided your station in society. So the higher up the degrees of initiation you were, the more power and sway you had in the say of what goes on in the nation or the country or the group. So we see where some of these ideas come from. Now also we're beginning to see here where they split off into these two sub-races, the Red Atlanteans and the Black Atlanteans. And the Red Atlanteans had been driven out from what we commonly would refer to as Atlantis today, the island nation that was left, the continent that was left after the ocean overtook much of it. And we have this notion of the Red Atlanteans had fled there, and it was mostly the Black Atlanteans left on the mainland of Atlantis. And the Red Atlanteans were called the White Adepts because they did not practice the Dark Arts. Or the Adepts of the Sacred Art. Now let's get back into it. The Dark Atlanteans were called the Black Empire for the reason that black magic was the fundamental principle of their entire organization. And their emperor was called the Black Emperor for he was the head of the Black Adepts or the Adepts of the Infernal Art. They were so much addicted to the dark side of the art that the nobles were called the lords of the dark face. These two empires were in the fiercest antagonism at all times, and at last the white emperor and all his followers were forced out of Poseidonus and driven to North America. In this way, the black emperor became supreme on the island and it was entirely given over to the practices of the Dark School. From this, however, it must not be assumed that they were a savage people. On the other hand, they were 
from the standpoint of modern utilitarianism, far more highly civilized than any Atlantean people had ever been before. They were a more material people, and for that reason, turned their attention to the accomplishment of material results. In that way, they developed a very material civilization that is a very utilitarian one. It is natural in a spiritual civilization for the people to attach little importance to material conveniences, but to bring all the powers of their being to bear upon the attainment of the spiritual attributes, while in a material civilization just the reverse is the case. They do not consider the spiritual attributes or even philosophical knowledge of any value except as it yields material results. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Doesn't this sound familiar? Is history repeating itself today? Gotta wonder. Let's continue. Of course, the Poseidonian civilization was somewhat inconsistent from the standpoint of modern material civilization. It will be difficult for our materialists at this date to conceive of a civilization where utilitarianism had reached its highest possible development, where aerial navigation had been reduced to an absolute science, and aeroplanes were used for the conveyance of freight and passengers from one end of the island to the other, and were run on regular schedule, the same as railroad trains are at the present time, where electricity was the crudest power known to man, and was only used for the purposes for which steam is now employed, while for all high-pressure work, a still more subtle force was made use of. And I'm going to pause a moment here, folks, before we go into more detail about that to point out, this was written in 1916. We didn't have commercial airlines in 1916, but he's claiming they had such a thing back then, air travel, in this Poseidonus, the end phase of the Atlantean civilization, if you want to call it that. They had other forms of power. They had high technology. They were very material-minded. They had conveniences, material world conveniences, much like we have today. That's what's being conveyed here. Now then, he says, electricity was the crudest power known to man and was only used for purposes for which steam is employed at the time of 1916. Then he said, well, for all high-pressure work, a still more subtle force was made use of, and now let's get into this. Because this, if true, has huge ramifications the pure ether, the odic force, the astral light, and some yet finer forces were harnessed in this way and were made practical use of in the mechanical activities of life. Their knowledge of applied mechanics, physics, and chemistry was far in advance of all the dreams of the modern mystics. While this will all appeal to the materialist, he will be surprised to learn that this same people were alchemists and astrologers, and that they developed some of these psychical powers to a tremendous degree. Telepathy was developed to such an extent that the official spies of the government depended upon it as a means of detecting rebellion, and the police made use of it as a means of locating and preventing crime. I'm going to pause. For another moment here, folks, this was written in 1916, and today we have modern films like Minority Report, 
speaking of something similar here. Do you understand the importance of what's being conveyed here? I'm not saying this is all true. I'm just saying this is very profound if it is true. And I find it very intriguing that some of the things that this guy was talking about 108 years ago that weren't even on the radar of the people at that time are now something that's considered as a possible future technology today. Think about that. Let's read on here. So we're talking about the whole minority report situation here. How they had developed their psychical powers, their powers of telepathy, to be able to locate and prevent crimes. Mind reading. The judges made use of it to detect perjury in the witnesses, and in fact, all the relations of life were determined by the telepathic information that one might receive. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Almost like a networked mind or a super brain, a worldwide web, an internet of thoughts, which is coming soon, folks, I assure you. They have white papers talking about it. Will be a subsystem of the internet of things. It's all in the planning phases. Did they have that back in Atlantis? Or something similar? Hard to say for sure. But you see it outlined here in these occult teachings. So whether this was true or not, at the very least, if you consider what's being conveyed here, you have to concede that, first of all, either this is an account that may be true, and perhaps they had these different high technologies and sciences and skills at that time, and this is something that we're seeking to duplicate today, or this is simply the musings and the wet dreams of some of these occultists, this ability to read people's minds and keep them in check in this way to prevent crimes by reading somebody's mind and knowing, hey, you're going to prevent a future crime, I can tell by your attitude. I could tell you're lying to me. You're committing perjury. This is the ultimate form of control. Telepathic information says all the relations of life were determined by the telepathic information that one might receive. Thought reading. And we're getting close with computer algorithms. Some would say we're already there in the modern era. But this was written in 1916. Stuff like that was not even on the radar of people at that point. And here, this guy's talking about it, having been handed down to him for hundreds, if not thousands of years, from other adepts within the secret schools. Let's read on. Also, hypnotism was developed to a tremendous degree, and the nobles and the priesthood controlled the people not through fear of temporal or spiritual chastisements, as in the case of other peoples, but through force of will. In other words, the people were kept in a state of semi-hypnotic subjection to the ruling class. 
This, of course, made them more and more subjective and caused their downfall, while at the same time, this abuse of occult power on the part of the ruling classes was the means of their downfall also. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Once again, I'm gonna ask, does any of this sound familiar in the modern era? People were kept in a state of semi-hypnotic subjection to the ruling class. Look at the world today, folks. Are you seeing parallels? Like I said, maybe this is true, maybe it's not. Maybe these are just the longings of these people in the secret schools who want to control everything, and perhaps they're writing it down. This is what they want for their future. And they're describing it in a way drawing back to the past. Seems to me there might be a kernel of truth behind some of this. Maybe they do know some things within the bounds of the secret schools that have been kept hidden. And they've pursued some of these ideas in secret. And we're seeing the manifestation of their pursuit of that today. And we're just catching up now. Those of us who are on the outside, the profane, because of the technological wonders that have been built in pursuit of these courses of thought by these people. But let's continue on. At last, after a very long period of this accentuation of the material side of an occult civilization, the forces of disintegration became so great that the earth itself was disturbed, and in time there was a great catastrophe, so great as to cause the entire island, that last remnant of Atlantis, which was otherwise known as Poseidonin, Poseidonis, excuse me, in the earlier text here, the last remnant of Atlantis, with the exception of America, the British Isles, and some unimportant islands to sink below the surface of the ocean, and the mighty Atlantic rolled peacefully over the land of Mu, the country of the mud hills. In one night it went down with its sixty-five millions of inhabitants. Some of them escaped in their airships and others in boats, but the refugees were only a few thousand, while the vast hordes of the population went down in the terrible destruction. This was a little more than 11,000 years ago. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So now we have a little bit of a timetable as to when this catastrophe allegedly happened. We have a timetable. And we have a rough estimation here. I don't know where they come up with these numbers or where this all comes from. I can't tell you for certain where the sources of this information were in antiquity. Who handed it to who? That would require a great deal of scholarship. And I don't know if it's one I'm equipped enough to go down that road. I do know that this information was passed down in the secret schools. This is from the Hermetic Brotherhood. They have kept some of this information. Sealed up in secret libraries through the years. And Dr. Raleigh has presented it to us now. So now we have a timeline. 
and we know their population there of Atlantis at this time of its destruction was roughly 65 million people, according to this work. Of course, that number might be purely symbolic, as we'll see here as we read a little further into this tonight. That number comes up a lot, 65, for some reason. And of course, if you add 6 and 5 together, you know what that equals. 11, the evilest of numbers, according to Aleister Crowley. And the number that is commensurate with the casting of a spell. So there might be something to this, or it might just be a red herring put there for a reason. Maybe to strengthen the resolve of the story here or some such thing. I don't know. But also we see inherent here the 11,000 years ago is when this was alleged to have taken place. So let's go ahead and we'll read on. So it says, This was a little more than 11,000 years ago. For several thousand years, the mud was so deep where the island had stood and the ocean was rendered so shallow that no ships were able to cross. And for that reason, it was not impossible for the eastern continent to have any communication with America was not possible for the eastern continent to have any communication with America. And thus, it was that the two remaining continents were entirely isolated from each other, and all knowledge, the one of the other, ceased. I'm going to pause again for a moment before we continue through here. So now we see this notion that the mud was so deep and the ocean so shallow as to render travel across the ocean at that time untenable. So we have a giant mud flood, ladies and gentlemen. Did you think that was a modern contrivance, this notion of a mud flood? It's a poke in the eye, direct from the secret schools, folks. That whole nonsensical topic that Tartarian idea, this mud flood that allegedly happened in the 1800s, it's a poke in the eye. It's hearkening back to the sinking of Atlantis. It's an archetype. And the people in the secret schools who foist some of these exotic-type conspiracy theories on the truther community out there, like this, they laugh that people take this seriously and that they've gone to the, the pains that they have to go around find all these buildings that seem to have underground portions of them that they can't seem to explain. And they try to relate everything back to this narrative. And it's taken on a life of its own. Just a little aside for you here, but this is the source from where that notion comes from. And of course, I've taken apart the whole Tartaria narrative ad nauseum. You could go back and listen to those shows that I've done on that. And you can know a couple things about it. But anyway, that's not the reason for the topic here tonight. It's an interesting way of looking at things, though. An interesting little aside for this. So we see here 
that this was the reason why the two continents, the land masses, were separated for such a length of time and lost touch with one another, lost communication, and lost all knowledge of one another, ostensibly. Thus was ended the ancient grandeur of Atlantis, save as it was perpetuated among the Atlantean peoples who had previously migrated to the American coast. Among them, the two warring factions continued until the king of the Golden Gate was forced from the city of the Golden Gate down into Mexico, where the descendants of the white Atlanteans are to be found to this day. I'm going to pause again here. The Golden Gate. Interesting name for a bridge, isn't it? Do you wonder where that comes from? Now you might know a little something. The Golden Gate Bridge. Look at its location. And it says here, The King of the Golden Gate was forced from the city of the Golden Gate down into Mexico where the descendants of the white Atlanteans are to be found to this day. And we're going to get there. Stick around a minute. What is the lesson taught us by the fall of Atlantis? It is this. Occultism is not an art to be practiced for the purpose of accomplishing utilitarian results, but rather it is a philosophy to be studied for the purpose of bringing oneself into the closest possible unity with the creative force of evolving life. Anyone who fails to understand this truth will be sure to start on the downward road, which will lead to destruction. Progress is only possible when we are working in accord with the constructive principle of nature. If we work against it, degeneracy is inevitable. And that's the end of the chapter speaking on the end of Atlantis. But you see, some of the Atlantean races survived and spread to different parts of the world. And we have remnants of their culture have been brought forward. And we're going to explore that right now. In the latter days of the Red Atlanteans and the first days of the Black Atlanteans, or to speak more accurately, in the time of transition, when the Black race was being developed from the Red race, some 3,000 years before the sinking of Poseidonus, or about 13,000 years B.C., there took place a great migration of Red Atlanteans from Atlantis to Yucatan. These people were the pure Red Atlantean stock. All were initiates of the Hermetic Brotherhood and of the mystery of the Feathered Serpent. This was while the island of Atlantis was still standing and at the time of the sinking of the mainland of the continent of Atlantis. These people were not only initiates of the mystery of the feathered serpent, but also into the mystery of the Great Mother. They were the original stock of the Atlantis of that time, two former sub-races having disappeared. Because of this fact, they claimed to be the Mother Race, from which the Black Atlanteans were derived, hence they took the name Mayas. Ma means the womb, esoterically the womb of the great mother hence mayas means the womb people or the mother race esoterically this means 
they were the original race of that time, and also that they were the womb of the Mexican races, that is, the mother of nations. Esoterically, it means they were the embodiment of the great mother principle. They were the nation that was organized on that principle. They gave to their country the name of Mayaks, or Mayak, which means the womb land, or the mother land. This was due to the fact that this land was the cradle of Mexican civilization and also of the civilization of the Orient. Colonies sent out from Mayaks established the civilizations of Egypt and of Asia. The ruins of Chichen Itza and other cities of Yucatan bear witness to their grandeur and the extent of their civilization. They did not attain to the beauty and the sublimity of civilization that was reached later by the Toltecs. Nevertheless, they were far superior to any civilized nation of the present day. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now you know the Mayas, according to the secret schools, were the direct descendants of the Atlanteans. They settled here in America, in Mexico, in South America, Central America, and portions of North America. They spawned some other sub-races, subcultures, as we'll see as we continue on. And it said that these were the original people that set out and traveled and settled in Egypt and some of the Asian places. Now you know a couple of things. And if you've been listening for any length of time, some dots will begin to connect for you. If you go back and you listen to the show where I talk about Manly P. Hall's Secret Destiny of America. Going through that book, he talks about the importance of the pyramids of Egypt and the pyramids here found in Central America. And the symbol on the back of the dollar bill, why we have a pyramid there, and the capstone of the pyramid floating above it, and what this means, the new Atlantis the reunification of the Atlantean race together. It all ties back to these esoteric ways of thinking. It's about reestablishing a golden age, and America is destined to be the new world, built upon the old world. That's why they call it the new world. There's nothing new about it. But you see, those in the secret society groups were fixated on this to the point that we have the symbol of the unification of civilization on the back of our dollar bill, representing the union of North America and Egypt together once again, being reunited as it once was when the whole continent of Atlantis existed and these civilizations were one and the same. The things represented there. It's all about this call back to that golden age. 
But let's not belabor that point too much. If you're interested in that, you could go back and listen to that or go back and look at Manly P. Hall's book, The Secret Destiny of America. It's mentioned in there about the importance here. And it's also a key to understanding some of the political things that have come about over the course of the past several decades. Things like the NAFTA Treaty. Well, this is why it was important. It's about the unification of the East and the West again together in unity. It all has to do with this esoteric symbolism. As much as you might like to separate politics from the occult, it's there too, folks. Always has been. It's ever-present. There's no separating it. It always, always, always ties back to the occult. Wish that wasn't the case, but it's always there. It's ever-present. It's undeniable when you actually begin to study it and dig into it. But anyway, that's a little side rant for another time. Let's get back to this. We know of their great antiquity for the reason that the Mastodon was their native or national totem. Now, a tribe of Indians never chooses an animal as their totem unless they are familiar with it. But once chosen, they are tenacious of all such symbols and are never likely to change it for something else. This being the case, it is evident that a tribe would never choose an extinct animal as their tribal totem. This leads to the conviction that the Mayas would never select the Mastodon as their totem if it was an extinct animal, or even a rare one at the time. Hence, they chose it at the time when it was common in Yucatan. This proves that at the time the Mayas came to Yucatan, there were Mastodons all over the country. In the main, they perpetuated the civilization of the Red Atlanteans of that time. Though, of course, this went through a period and a process of evolution among them. They lost sight of some of the elements of Red Atlantean civilization and developed some features that were unknown to their Red Atlantean ancestors. The foundation of their educational system was geometry, mathematics, astronomy, and astrology. They also practiced augury and divination, perhaps the element in their science that will interest the modern mind the most was their biological system. Now pay attention here closely, folks. This next sentence will speak volumes to you. They were Darwinians 14,000 years before Darwin's time. I'm going to pause again. I've been telling you for a very long time now. Evolution is far older than you think. Charles Darwin had nothing to do with the invention of the notion. He was not some great mind. In fact, the vast majority of his work was lifted from his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, who was a member of the secret schools and a very high adept within them. You were never told that, though, either, were you? The idea of evolution far precedes Darwin. They just needed some way to roll it out to the masses in an acceptable scientific way in the modern era. And they got their patsy 
Charles Darwin. The cousin of Sir Francis Galton, who introduced the idea of eugenics on which Darwinian evolution is based. Did you know that? They never taught you that either in school, did they? Let's read on here, though. That's a topic for another time as well. So we have the Mayas here. According to this, were Darwinians 14,000 years before Darwin's time. They believed that man was evolved from the ape. This was known not only from their history and their, the tradition that has survived from them, but also from their hieroglyphics. Their language was simply a modified form of that of Atlantis. Their sacred hieroglyphics were derived from the totems and the sacred animals that were the celestial correspondences of those totems, and also from the geometrical glyphs. Mayan was the ancient sacred language of the initiates in Akkadia, Babylon, Persia, Indian, and Egypt. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Mayan was the ancient sacred language that was taught as the language of the initiates in Akkadia, Babylon, Persia, India, and Egypt. You were also never told this, were you? In course of time, it was lost in the most of these countries. But there are adepts in the fastnesses of Tibet and in the Gobi Desert who still are in possession of this sacred language, which is simply the ancient Mayan tongue. For evidence as to this aspect of the problem, presented in such a manner as to appeal to the scientific mind, the reader is referred to the invaluable researches of the late lamented Dr. Leplongin, who accumulated enough to convince anyone but an archaeologist of the truth of his position. It is not the mission of the present writer to go into those details, but rather to give the mystic key to the problem so that his readers may have the advantage of the esoteric tradition and may see the truth from the standpoint of an initiate of the temple. This knowledge cannot be had except from one having the inner knowledge which will give the key to the symbols. So I'm going to pause again for a moment here, folks. So much of what he's saying here has symbolic meaning to it as well. There's something deeper encoded in this exoteric type of form of writing. So we have this history. Whether it's an actual physical history or not, there are important ideas encoded in here that absolutely speak volumes as to the importance of these ancient symbols and these ancient races that are being drawn here. Were the Mayan people really the leftovers of the Atlanteans here in America? Whether it's true or not, there's important symbology tied to that notion. There's something deeper here. But let's continue on with this reading. One of the most peculiar features of the Mayan civilization was the gyneocracy, or government by women. 
This can only be understood when we realize that with the Mayas, the Great Mother was the most important of all the gods or goddesses. It is true that in the Brotherhood there was recognition of the heart of heaven and also of the feathered serpent, but above all these conceptions rose that of the father and the mother of the gods. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we're getting into some important symbolism or symbology here, and we'll see some of what's been promulgated from these symbols through the course of time and through the course of civilization here. And you'll recognize some of this as we continue, if you haven't already. But let's go ahead and continue. So it says, But in this arrangement, the mother of the gods was far the most important. The entire nation was in reality the organized expression of the cultus of the great mother. For this reason, we are to look for this conception of motherhood cropping out everywhere. Mayax was, to all intents and purposes, the mother of every one of the Mayas, and for this reason, we may look for a situation in which the royal family is recognized as the mother of the people. This was indeed the fact, and yet the sovereign was the king, and not the queen, as one would have supposed would be the case under the circumstances. Also, we do not find the idea of succession through the female line rather than the male line as we might have expected. However, this does not so much matter for the reason that the Mayas were monogamous, and as the king had but one wife, the children would succeed through both the male and the female line. The peculiarity of the arrangement of succession was the fact that the youngest son of the king was the crown prince and succeeded to the throne. There was another peculiarity in the arrangement, and that was the crown prince was at all times married to his oldest sister. Thus we have the peculiarity of the marriage of the oldest daughter and the youngest son of the king. As a rule, therefore, the king's wife was at least 20 years older than he was. While he was yet a boy, the crown prince was married to a woman who was approaching middle age. This arrangement will become clear when we realize the purpose of it. The king's wife was at all times old enough to be his mother, and she was in reality in loco parentis to him. She acted as a sort of foster mother to her husband. The Mayas seemed to hold to that idea that it was the duty of the wife to mother her husband, and so they married the young king to a woman who would be enough older than he was that she would naturally mother him, and also that he would accept the mothering as a matter of course. Furthermore, it is customary for the older sister to, in a manner, bring up her younger sisters and brothers, and they get used to obeying her, and in many instances are dis disciplined by her. Now it was assumed that the eldest daughter of the king would, as a matter of course, act as a sort of second mother to her little brother, and that he would get so used to obeying her and listening to her advice that he would naturally continue to do so after they were married. Now, inasmuch as the foundation of all Maya social life was the feminine element, they grew to look upon the woman as the embodiment of that principle, 
as being a safer guide than the man, and therefore they assumed that it would be better for a man to be under obedience to some woman than to follow his own inclinations, and if he must be guided by any one woman, who was better for this function than his wife? As all were under the guidance of the Great Mother, it followed that the human mother was the proper interpreter of that Great Mother while she lived, and after her death the man's wife, as his second mother, was to fill that function. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we have some very interesting facets of Mayan culture, once again, that you were probably never taught about. Being presented here, and you can understand a couple things about things going on in our modern society based upon some of these same principles. You can understand where perhaps some of the myths of such things as the Amazons have come from. Based upon some of these ideas and how some of that is probably a misnomer to send people off the course. But let's continue here. After the marriage, the king was supposed to obey his sister wife, and therefore she exercised the real rule over the country. She did not come to the front before the people, but rather ruled her brother husband in the home and molded his character. Thus we have the practical application of an idea which is held by many at the present time vis-a-vis the wife is the interior or spiritual expression of the family, and as such the inspiration of her husband, who gives expression in an outward way to that which is given him by his wife. The queen, as the expression of the divine mother, was therefore recognized as the guide of the king, who merely interpreted her will to the people in his official conduct." What the queen was to the king, so in a less degree, was the wife to the husband throughout the entire nation. In every instance, the wife was the head of the husband, so far as the inward principles were concerned, though the husband was the visible head of the family. We might express this matter in other terms by saying that the husband was the formal head of the family, while the wife was the real head of her husband. We do not find so much difference in this arrangement and what is in practical operation in a great many families at the present time, with this exception that whereas in the present day the husband assumes to be the head of his wife, and she therefore has to rule him through diplomacy, in the Maya family life she was recognized by all, the husband included, as his spiritual director. The real relationship might be best indicated by saying that the wife exercised pretty much the same influence over her husband that the confessor exercises over a Catholic. She was, in fact, his confessor and spiritual advisor. It was for her to reveal the law to him, for was not she the natural mirror of that great mother? And were not all subject to the great mother in everything? The obedience of the husband to his wife was therefore, in reality, obedience to the manifestation of the great mother. It was therefore outwardly that the husband was the head of the house. In reality, he was subject to his wife as the power behind the throne. 
who guided and disciplined her husband, who was little more than her mouthpiece while she was both the heart and the directing intelligence of the household. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks, just to point out some of the important ideas that are being represented here. Who was the real power behind the throne? The great mother. You see this mother cult has permeated throughout all societies and religions and cultures throughout time. And this equates directly to the Egyptian phenomenon of the worship of Isis. We have all of these various connections here. And it's not to say there's not any truth in this. It sure seems to be logical. You see, this is the true power of the Divine Feminine that's being represented here and being talked about in an actual sense. What has been adopted in our modern era as feminism, especially militant feminism here in Western culture, is the complete inversion of what this truly represents, the true feminine power. You see, they've tried to turn it on its head in the inversion principle here in the modern day. Women, naturally, have a very strong influence and power in society when they realize their divine feminine nature, as expressed here. It's about influence. Influence and imagination, not about will. or invoking or imposing your will on somebody. It's about subtlety. It's about influence. Imagination. These are the feminine aspects, and it always ties back to this feminine and masculine type of energy inherent. But anyway, let's continue on. We're getting low on time, and I want to finish up a little bit more here. And I think we're going to wind up having to continue this series because there's a whole lot more here, folks, that you're not going to hear in history class. You're not going to find in your textbooks, and probably not even if you go to college or collegiate-level history and look for scholarship there. You're not going to hear about this stuff. Let's continue. From the foregoing, it will appear that the Maya regime was a feminism in almost every particular. At the same time, it must be borne in mind that no woman actually filled any office. That was the work of man. Her function was to rule her particular man. There was one thing, however, that redeemed the Mayan civilization from complete feminism. This was the priesthood. The elder brother of the king and queen was at all times the high priest. He was therefore the natural guide and director of both of them, and as the interpreter of the will of the gods, he must be implicitly obeyed by all, even the queen herself. As he never married but remained a celibate, it followed that he was not under feminine influence or control, and therefore he was able to bring a perfectly free masculine intelligence to bear upon all. Therefore, 
we see a situation which has never been duplicated in any other country. The elder brother high priest was the head, the elder sister queen was the heart, and the younger brother king was the hand of the nation, or perhaps we might better call him the mouth of the hierarchy. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we see a whole lot of symbol symbolic reference being made here a whole lot of symbolism at play you have the high priest the elder brother the queen the elder sister and the king himself the younger brother as portions of this hierarchy and they're equated to the head the heart and the hand or the mouthpiece of the hierarchy Let's read on. From another point of view, they were the visible expression of the heart of heaven. For the high priest was the heart that thinks. The queen was the mouth that speaks, and the king was the eyes that see. In this sense, the priest was the vehicle of thought, the queen of word, and the king of deed. In the family, the priesthood represented thought, the wife word, and the husband deed. And that's the last portion of the chapter on the Mayas here. And we see how these spiritual concepts and ideas of this hierarchy have been ported over into today, into our time now and have been inverted from what the intention is there. And this is a unique type of a setup here for a nation. But you see the wisdom inherent in what was being purveyed there. And now we have the opposite of that going on. They're trying to flip everything on its head. The inversion principle at play. But the interesting point here is the secret schools, they have records that we don't of our past, of our history, of our lineage, of our ancestry. Why do you think they're so enamored of bloodlines and tracing back lineage they're absolutely obsessed with this stuff because they want to trace themselves back to this land of Atlantis this civilization it is truly an intriguing thing to look at is this true? I don't know. I can't say for certain that these things are true. Seems to me like there is some evidence being provided here that may connect the dots for us a little bit and seem plausible. I think there are some core tenets of truth behind some of this. And maybe, just maybe, they are giving us an accurate record in writings like this. 
there are spiritual ideas underlining these things as well. Symbolism at play. Wisdom to be garnered from looking at this stuff. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to continue this on a future episode here. Because now we've connected the dots, we've laid down the trail, you see what is known by the secret schools about this civilization of Atlantis. Where it came from, to some degree, directly spawned from the Lemurian civilization that preceded them. What happened to Atlantis? It didn't completely sink overnight like the legend has. It began sinking slowly over the course of time. And then when the main Atlantean population turned to the dark side... Then the remnants of the island that remained, Poseidonus, as it was called here in the secret schools. This is what's largely known today by those of us that look at it as Atlantis. This sank beneath the waters catastrophically overnight. And the population of some 65 million people was decimated. Several thousand escaped through their using their airships and some of their seaworthy vessels. They were able to get out of there. And they spread to different lands. So we have this tale being told here by the secret schools that you won't hear anywhere else. And how these things came into being. And we see the first connection is with the Mayan culture here in Mesoamerica. Back to the Atlanteans, and from there, it is said they traveled, and they set up shop in Acadia, in Egypt, in the lands of Asia, and that the original language of the Mayans here is actually the language, the secret language of the initiates in these places, in Egypt. So likely, the Egyptian hieroglyphics are descendants of the Mayan hieroglyphics, which are descendants of the Atlantean hieroglyphs. That's what's being inferred here. And of course, there's other connections to this, other cultures as well, where some of these Atlantean sub-races had settled and spread. And we'll get to that in a future episode here. Because there's a whole lot more ground to cover on this notion of the secret history of the world that you were never taught. And I find it totally fascinating. Because there are so many holes in what we've been told about our past. And we can only look back so far before all records of anything preceding are just gone or erased or non-existent. And we don't know. And I don't know if these people truly know any different than we do. But this is what's been handed down, and it's worth consideration. Like I said, even if it is fiction, fanciful fiction, it expresses a lot of ideas that are very much 
very much entrenched in the mindset of these secret society groups, these occult fraternities, the things that they want for themselves, the things they envision for our future, all bound up in these things, looking back into the past. So whether it's true or not, it's immaterial. What we need to understand is there's some important concepts being conveyed here, some important ideas being conveyed, and that there are people in positions of power in this world that truly believe in these things and the things they do to act upon their beliefs in them will affect all of us. So it's important that we understand where they come from, what is their perspective, what are their belief systems, what are their motivations, why do they do the things they do, how does it all tie back to this stuff? It always does. We could see some direct connections, and we'll go ahead and connect some more dots when we explore this line of thinking a little further next time. Anyway, folks, I would like to thank you all for tuning in tonight. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.